Today we ask, is the Shroud of Turin real? Why are we so obsessed with the face of Jesus on an ancient piece of cloth? Well, it's probably because someday we will see the face of Jesus. In fact, it's what we were made for. Welcome to the Deep End. This is the Bible, and this is the Deep End Podcast, where we talk about the Bible in modern day language. Thank you for joining us. This is the Deep End. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Wednesday at noon, Deep Enders, hello. How are you? Can you believe it? This is the second to last episode of season two of the Deep End. 33 episodes old, season two. It's, it seems like only yesterday we were unveiling this brand new studio and walking you through and showing you around and talking about the change of the deep end. And then it seems like only yesterday we started Revelation. And here we are in Revelation chapter 21 this week. So today, Revelation 21. Next week, Revelation 22. And then season two is over. And you probably are asking, what comes next? I'll tell you what comes next. A break from the deep end as we do a couple of things. Number one, I prep for season three so that I can teach through, guess what? The Book of Acts. Next season, Deep End, season three, The Book of Acts. So we did 1 Corinthians in season one, season two, Revelation, season three, Acts, by popular request of yours. The poll questions went out on social media and you answered. Acts one. Not by much, by the way. Romans, a close second. But I'm kind of glad it's Acts first because actually it comes first in the Bible. So we will be taking a break after next Wednesday. I know, I know you're going to ask yourself right now, what am I going to do with my life? My life no longer has meaning. The deep end is not on. What am I going to do? Okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to buy yourself this wonderful deep end tumbler drink vessel. And this will be pre-filled with the watery nutrients of the Word of God. And you will drink it to keep the satisfaction alive. I'll tell you, I feel so satisfied just having drunk that little sip. (laughs) Okay, I'm just kidding about that. You can buy one of our Deep End tumblers on thedeepend.tv. And uh, you can also subscribe through our social medias which are Instagram, Facebook, YouTube.coms slash The Deep End TV. And if you would do me a big favor and like the video on YouTube and subscribe and make sure that you're subscribing to The Deep End YouTube. We broadcast in both The Waters Church YouTube and The Deep End YouTube. Hey, do me a favor, subscribe to The Deep End channel. Also, if you're listening by radio, welcome in on AM 1240 or FM 99.3 in Woonsocket, Thursday nights at 7 p.m. I'm glad that you have joined us. Our audience is growing all over the place, and so I'm so glad that you are here today. Yes, the deep end will take a break, but it will be back. We're going to do some renovations around here. This is going to be hopefully completely different when we start back up in uh, the third week of September, I think, second week of September. So August is, you know, kind of like the doldrums, people getting back to school. I have three kids, you know, people doing their thing. We don't have to put a lot of pressure on us to have 
the deep end happening. And plus, it gives our staff a chance to revamp this whole studio. We got some different ideas, some cool ideas, and I'm excited about what's coming up. And I will see you soon. But not to worry, you have today and you have next Wednesday. So I will see you then, hopefully, joining us for the last part of the Revelation study, Book of Revelation study. Leave a review for me. I asked you this last week, but this would help us. On our po- on the Apple Podcast app, if you just open it up on the Apple Podcast app, search The Deep End, you should find our logo. And the logo looks like this right over here behind me with the D and the E in the, in the circle. There we go. Uh, and leave a review on that podcast if you've enjoyed the content of The Deep End. That helps our um, uh, exposure to more listeners, and we want to spread the word. Amen. Then the Deep End Facebook page, you can leave a review there. There's about five reviews. We want to get hundreds of reviews. So like the page, the Deep End Facebook page, and leave a review for me. That would be very helpful. Okay, let's get to the news. The Shroud of Turin, friends, is back in the news. Now, some of you might be asking, what the heck is the Shroud of Turin? Well, what would you think of a piece of cloth that goes back almost one th- over 1,000 years? No, 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 I'm sorry, almost 1,000 years, and comes up for discussion still to this day every five to seven years with great regularity. Pretty intriguing, right, for a piece of cloth? Well, what if it was the cloth that was wrapped around the body of the Lord Jesus Christ while he laid in the tomb? That is what we call the Shroud of Turin. Why Turin? Because it's been stored in a cathedral in Turin, Italy, for hundreds of years. And it's back in the news. And this, the reason why it's back in the news, and I just have a picture here on the screen for you, uh, on the left of your screen is the Shroud of Turin picture, or the impression of the face of the man who was wrapped in the shroud. And you'll see there up on the forehead, there's some white and some markings there. It looks like blood markings. And then there's blood markings at the wrists, uh, down further, and at the feet. And there's blood throughout. And then on the right side of your screen, you see what um, we have digitally produced, scientists have digitally produced as a projected or assumed image of the face of Jesus from the shroud. It's, it's quite an exhilarating study, honestly. You, you can get into the wormhole on YouTube on Shroud of Turin videos like I was earlier today, and you can just watch all kinds of um, interesting um, speculations and conclusions uh, for both pro and against this actually being the, the, shroud of, the shroud that Jesus was wrapped in. Biblically speaking, we need to remember that his head was wrapped in a different piece of cloth than his body. So right there from the biblical text, there's some, there's some questions about whether this is uh, accurate. But there are also some stunning scientific discoveries about the shroud that prove that it is possibly um, authentic. Uh, now, why do I bring it up? Because new research, actually, this is from the Christian Post, new research is actually being called for uh, on the cloth uh, based on the fact that the 1988 radiocarbon testing was uh, now believed to be in error. Uh, that, that test done on the shroud in 1988, the Catholic Church, this was big to do in the 1980s, the, the, the Catholic Church released it for carbon dating to, to prove that it's actually authentic, and then it just the t- carbon dating only went back to 1260 or 1390. And then there was this big uh, to-do about was there, a, um, was there a bishop who paid a painter to make it, and then that was disproven. 
so it's possibly real. Anyway, it goes back and forth about whether or not this is actually the, the, the shroud that Jesus was wrapped in. Uh, the fascinating facts about it are the blood stain. It is blood on the shroud. So this is blood on the shroud. There's another fascinating uh, detail about the blood, and that is that on the on the partic- on the shroud, the blood is still red on the shroud. And typically, when blood dries on a cloth, it turns brown or black after a certain period of time. Not much time, actually. But for some reason, the shroud has stayed. The blood stains on the shroud has stayed red. Well, why? This is actually science, and uh, there's a substance called. Uh, Billy Rubin. That's, that sounds like a proper name, but it's actually not. It's a, it's a substance called Billy Rubin. And it is uh, a compound that is released um, when red blood cells explode in the body. And the reason why red blood, spell, red blood cells would explode is because of, check this out, extreme torture or suffering. And so scientifically... The fact is, the undisputed fact is, the blood of whoever is on this shroud, whether it be Jesus or somebody else, that person suffered extreme and brutal torture for the blood to be that red still to this day, hundreds of years later, maybe even thousands of years later. Just kind of interesting, I think. I don't know. I, I, it's kind of interesting. It's back in the news. Anyway, they're going to release it. Uh, for more tests, because the carbon dating done in 1988, the, the data was never, I guess, followed up with, and no one actually released the um, the analysis, uh, the 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 the, uh, the style of analysis that they that they did on the shroud. So it's just kind of interesting that once again, this ancient artifact of the church, the Catholics call it a relic has come back into the news. You haven't heard of this news because, of course, in the regular news, it's all about the tweet storm between Donald Trump and the squad. If you haven't heard of that, it's good. I'm glad. You should be happy. Just go and enjoy your summer, for heaven's sakes. This is absolutely ridiculous. But anyway, uh, the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. is raising $2.5 million uh, to create a groundbreaking, high-tech, innovative exhibition for the Shroud of Turin, and that'll be uh, opened in January 2021. By the way, if you've never been to the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., please go. I was there a couple of years ago. It is fantastic. It is beautiful. And an interesting story about the Museum of the Bible is funded by the founders of Hobby Lobby, the Green family. Hobby Lobby, which was in the news on a neg- in a negative light uh, in 2014 because they fought the Obamacare uh, mandate for... Uh, health insurances to cover um, contraception and other forms of um, uh, getting rid of, I think there's an after, after the morning after pill for getting rid of an unplanned pregnancy. Well, they didn't want to provide that. As Christians of conscience, they didn't want to provide that for empl- their employees. And so they went to, all the way to the Supreme Court to fight that. They won the Supreme Court battle, and then, of course, people dragged them through the mud for it. But the funny thing about it is the lawyer that opposed the Museum of the Bible the, I'm sorry, the lawyer that opposed the Green family, the Hobby Lobby company, uh, opposed them in the Supreme Court trial for their right to provide the health care that they, by conscience, could provide for their employees. They, that lawyer was on the board, the planning board, for the city when they went to the city for uh, the permitting to build the Museum of the Bible. And he actually became 
a big fan of what they were doing at the Museum of the Bible and showed up at the grand opening of the Museum of the Bible. Mind you, this is a lawyer that opposed them vigorously at the Supreme Court level. And after seeing the museum, uh, the museum, he quoted, this is the nicest, most incredible museum in the city uh, as of right now. Wish you nothing but the best of luck. It's just a, a testimony to what Proverbs says, that if a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. I just, I love that story. Uh, I heard that story when I went to the Museum of the Bible with a bunch of pastors uh, from uh, all around the nation. Just a powerful story of just do what God wants you to do, and, and he'll take care of the rest. Anyway, go visit the Museum of the Bible. Shroud of Turin, why do I bring it up? I bring it up for a couple of reasons. Number one, carbon dating is a sketchy science. This is what people don't tell you. And um, it's also one of the, <laughs> one of the most... Um, I guess you would say one of the most often used arguments against the age of humans on the planet, carbon dating, even the age of the planet. And so you know how seculars love to say, well, the, the world is millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. Huh? I mean, every time you talk to them, it gets older. It's funny. It's like, are we in like a light, light warp speed now in the, 19, in the 21st century? Like, why, why every time do they bring up the age of the earth, does it suddenly grow by 100 billion years? Now it's not 100 billion years anymore. Now it's 400 billion years. And it's like, this is a way that they justify evolution and all this kind of nonsense. And I just find it hysterical. But anyway, back to the point. Carbon dating is a sketchy science. It's a sketchy science. Like, how do we know that the dating processes that go back well before our ability to test them against actual results is not sketchy beyond whatever the, the norm is, the, 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 uh, the, the thing that you test the hypothesis against, right? The control group in, in scientific words. Secondly, it's incredible how our faith is linked to history. Like whether or not this is true, Shroud, this, this, this article of uh, Lenin goes back to 1200s, the 1200s, which is just incredible to me. I mean, and, and people have been holding on to this and cherishing it for how many hundreds of years, 800 years now? It's just incredible. The Christian faith is a historic religion. I think we sometimes forget that. And I think that sometimes in our modern age, we fall into the trap of ignoring those who came before us. And there's so many hundreds of hundreds of years of great thinkers, philosophers, writers about theology, about the Christian faith that you should be reading and learning from. And then finally, the face of Jesus. The face of Jesus. There's like three history channel uh, specials on the Shroud of Turin. There's like three on CNN. There's, they're all over there, and they, and they come up every Easter. The reason why you don't see them right now is because they only come up around Easter time. But I would encourage you to watch all of them. They're pretty fascinating, or any of them. They're pretty fascinating, and they're pretty fair, actually, to be honest with you, um, the ones that I've watched anyway. And they're always kind of moving because the people who research this really love Jesus. The people who want the Shroud to be true, they really love Jesus. It's, it's amazing to watch them get moved when they see his face. But the thing that I really bring up today is the, the face of Jesus. The face of Jesus. We are made to see the face of Jesus. This is why it's such an incredible research. It's, it's why it's such an uh, important uh, topic. It's, it's why there are people that give themselves years to study uh, this piece of cloth. Because the face of Jesus is what we are made to see. And that is what Revelation chapter 21 is all about. We are going to be with Jesus. Now, before we get to Revelation, though, I want to just do one question. Ask anything. We ask you all the time, send in your questions anonymously, 508-316-9333, to the podcast. I'd love to answer them. A couple of weeks ago, I had this question come in, and I just want to answer it. 
The questioner says, I was listening to a well-known evangelist and his wife the other day who said that their ministry and themselves are sinless. His wife went through her entire day as an example of how she does not sin in the day and has not sinned in years. This confounded me or confused me because I've always been taught and read in the Bible on my own that the only person who is sinless is Jesus. What are your thoughts on this? Well, my thoughts are you should have listened to the message this past weekend at Waters Church, and I would encourage you to go there, waterschurch.org. I think it's called slash watch, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, just go to waterschurch.org, click on the Southeastern Rhode Island, Southeastern Mass Rhode Island section, and you will see our present series called I'm a Christian, but I still, and we're doing the things that Christians still struggle with. And last weekend, we did sin. So yes, Christians will still sin. And I pretty much covered the answer to that question on that message, just doing a little cross-pollination advertisement here for the Ministry of Waters Church. Check it out. I'm a Christian, but I still... Part two, sin. That was pretty good, too. Part one, check that out. But part two, sin. That should be up today. You can watch it now and get that answer through the ministry of the word here at Waters Church. But this is the Deep End Podcast, and we're going to get into the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, the new heavens and the new earth the face of Jesus, life with God. So Revelation chapter 21 is going to talk about our eternal home. And it comes right after, if you remember you were here last week, it comes right after the most debated topic in the book of Revelation, the millennium. Are you pre? Are you post? Are you ah? Are you pan millennial? All those, all those prefixes to the word millennium, uh, which is kind of funny because we argue, argue, argue about the millennium as Christians, like we argue about many things, okay, whether, you know, depending on what, how we were raised or what denomination we're from or how we read the Bible or blah, 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 blah. And we get into all of our little camps, all of our little sectarian camps, and we forget to keep the main thing, the main thing, which is Jesus died for the sins of the world, believe in him and receive forgiveness and heaven and hereafter. And I just find it ironic that right after the most contentiously debated topic in Revelation comes the eternal hope, new heavens and new earth, which is kind of like God saying, um, kids, get along because you're all going to have to live together. <laughs> like All you people want to argue all these stupid little theological debates. Guess what? You're all probably going to be in the same place if you put your faith in Christ, okay? You're all going to be there living together. You're all going to be coming home. So play nice on earth because it's going to be awkward in heaven if you spend all your time here making fun of each other and poking at each other, all right? I just, I just think, sometimes I think that on the streets of heaven, God's going to put Pentecostals right next door to Presbyterians. And Presbyterians are going to live right next door to Arminians. And Arminians are going to be living right next door to Catholics. And everybody's going to be like, oh my gosh, what are you doing here? I didn't expect you to be here. I was taught my whole life that you weren't coming here. How'd you get here? And you know what they're going to say? They're going to say the same thing you are. Jesus got me here. Anyway, Revelation chapter 21 is our eternal home, our eternal hope that one day, what David said in Psalm 23, verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One day that's going to become, that's going to be true, what David talked about. We have the point of our lives in Revelation chapter 21. This is the point. What's the point? You ever ask yourself that? Why am I alive? Why am I on this earth? Do you ever ask yourself that question? 
Maybe you're listening on the radio right now, driving home, long day of work, and you're wondering, what the heck did I just spend nine to ten hours of my day doing? Is there any reason for it? Well, there is. If you have faith in Christ, there is a point. And the point is new heavens and new earth, life with God. The key verse in Revelation chapter 21 is verse 3. And here's what it says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, from the throne, sorry, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be as their God. What we lost in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, is reclaimed finally through the work of Jesus and his return in Revelation chapter 21. So here's what we were supposed to have right from the beginning, life with God. Remember, starts in the garden. The garden has no sin, no shame, no death, naked and unafraid. They, there they were. God was with them, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They were supposed to fellowship with God, and that was supposed to be our reality. Well, what happened? Eve followed the serpent into sin, led her husband into sin, the fall, the curse, shame, guilt, fear. They run from God. And ever since Genesis chapter 3, God has been at work to bring us back to what we lost. Only the amazing thing is it starts with the garden. The story starts with the garden, the Garden of Eden, ends with the city coming down from heaven. What does that tell you? It tells you this. Progress is godly. How do you get from a garden to a city? Through progress, through scientific discovery, through technology, through industry, So all these people who want to poo-poo industry, who want to poo-poo every modern scientific discovery as something bad, guess what? It's not bad. It's actually good. We're supposed to rule and subdue creation. That was the original creation mandate in Genesis chapter 1. Supposed to rule, subdue, use it, leverage it, make it better. Guess what? All that we've been doing to some extent, even even with sin present in the world and in our hearts. So my point is this. Imagine how cool it's going to be in the new heavens and the new earth when there's no more sin. Like, I'm like, you probably can tell, I'm surrounded by technology here in the deep end, surrounded by, I love technology, love it. Technology's not evil. Technology's awesome. Anybody else have an Alexa in your house? Anybody? Alexa, turn on the light. Did I just mess with your house? <laughs> I love that. I love Alexa. It's all over my house. I'm telling Alexa to do everything. Man, someday I hope that Alexa will like, hey, Alexa, change the baby's diapers. Wouldn't that be awesome? But anyway, I love technology. And I think about how the new heavens and the earth, where are we going? We are going to the new heavens and the new earth. What we have now, no sin, no death, no shame, no guilt. Woo-hoo! Imagine the technological advances possible in a world where people aren't selfish, where people don't do it for the money, where people do it because they genuinely love each other and love God. The, the possibilities are endless. You, you watch these movies like The Martian Or like I mentioned last week, what's that movie I mentioned last week? Interstellar. Uh, Or Passengers. I love that movie, Passengers. You talk about like going to different planets and exploring and colonizing different places. I mean, even Elon Musk wants to get us to Mars before he dies. He wants to actually be buried on Mars. I think that's pretty cool to want to be buried on Mars. But anyway, you think about these, we we have this longing to explore and to dominate the world and to rule and subdue what we were given, the mandate we were given in Genesis chapter 1. But what holds us back is sin. And the new heavens and the new earth is a promise not of sitting idly in the presence of God for eternity, twiddling our thumbs or playing the harp and singing, but rather doing what we were made to do, cultivate, rule, subdue, without sin, without shame, without guilt. 
and to do it to glorify God and to help one another. That is what we are looking forward to as Christians. That's our point. Ooh, I'm so excited just talking about it. I just get so excited about it. I hope you get excited. God with man, man with God. This is the aim. This is the point of the Christian faith. I don't think we hear enough of this because lots of people make Christian faith about rules and regulations. It's not. Or rituals and ordinances. It's not. Or morality and goodness. It's not. Or helping others or being nice. It's not about that, man. It's about life with God. Now, all those other things... Rules, rituals, morality, helping others. As long as they help us cultivate life with God, they're fine. But the point is not the rules, the rituals, the morality, or the helping others. The point is life with God. And when we have life with God, good things happen. This is the aim of the Christian. This is the aim of our faith. This is the culmination of the ages. This is our promise in Christ. We are made for this, by the way. C.S. Lewis famously said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy... The only logical explanation is that I am made for another world, end quote. Amen. You ever feel like, man, no matter what you get, no matter what you earn, no matter what you have, it's just not enough. You get a new toy, you get a new car, but it gets old, it gets smelly. You get a new house, but then you have to clean it, you have to maintain it, you have to upkeep it. You get a new, I don't know, relationship, but then you find out that they're just another flawed human being. And you think, what, what is it? Why do I keep looking for and I keep not finding? In the famous words of you too. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. It's because what you're looking for can only be absolutely fully discovered in the life that is to come. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. 74% of Americans want heaven to be real. 74%, three-quarters of Americans. That's far and away way more Americans than are currently, quote-unquote, born-again Christians. Now, we may not all want to be born-again Christians, but almost everybody in America wants to have eternal life in heaven. This is in our hearts. It's pre-programmed there. Freud, the very secular, very atheistic, very anti-Christian uh, psychotherapist, said that belief in life after death is the oldest and most insistent wish in mankind. So Revelation chapter 21 is going to introduce us to where we're going because this is what we are made for. First, the first, verse eight, the first eight verses are kind of an introduction to the last two chapters of Revelation. And then it talks about in Revelation chapter 21, the new Jerusalem, the, new, the measurements of the city, and the light, the lamb, is the light of the city. So let's get into it, shall we? Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw... A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Okay, new heavens and new earth. John's not coming up with something new, by the way. He's actually almost verbatim quoting a lot of Isaiah chapters 60 through 65. See, even in the Old Testament scriptures, Isaiah 60 through 65, point to the culmination of the ages. So even Jews have the hope of this future reality whereby God will restore earth and heaven to what it should be. Isaiah 65, verse 17. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Uh, Isaiah 66, 22. For as the heavens, as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make shall remain before me, so shall your descendants and your name remain. In other words, there's hope. There's hope in the Old Testament for this. John is a good Jew, 
Okay, he's a good Jew. Remember this. John was not a Christian before he was a Jew. So he was a Jewish man. He was raised in these scriptures, and he realizes that Jesus is the pathway. Who he, Jesus is the Messiah who will inaugurate this new age where there is no sin. Now, I don't know if you saw what I saw, but in verse 1 it says, the sea was no more. And some of you are beach bums. Some of you are like, what? I can't go to the beach. I don't know if I want to go. Okay, relax. Relax, friend. You have to understand that this is a metaphor. The, the sea is a picture. It's a theological picture in the ancient world, and, in the, and especially in the Jewish scriptures. Uh, the sea represented <clears throat> every evil and chaotic reality of this world. In fact, remember there's a famous prophet in Israel that gets tossed into the sea. What's his name? Five, four, three, Jonah, okay? Jonah gets tossed into the sea. So the sea represents rebellion, death, sin, wickedness, hell. Uh, in, in, this, in the whale, he actually says, out of the depths of Sheol, a Hebrew word for hell, I cried. So the sea is representative of hell, destruction, death, chaos. This is what the scriptures are saying in Revelation 21. In the new heaven and new earth, there's no chaos. There's no hell. There's no, there's, for the people of God, there's no, there's no destruction and death. That's a beautiful picture. Now, a couple of word pictures also in these first four verses, which are important. Number one, it's a holy city, city, which speaks of many people of diverse backgrounds. Like I said, there's going to be many different kinds of Christians in heaven. There's going to be many different kinds of church people in heaven, Christian people. But there's going to be many different ethnicities um, and colors and tribes and tongues. And this is beautiful, this reflects the creativity of our God. He doesn't make a one-size-fits-all Christian. And I'm so excited about that. Because maybe you say to yourself, well, I'm not that kind of a Christian. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be my kind of Christian. You just have to be a Christian, which means that you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive him and confess him as Lord. Okay? But apart from that, you know, I love it. You ever go to churches where there's a lot of ethnic diversity and people dress up in their ethnic garb and go to church and worship? I think that's beautiful. I think that's a little foretaste of heaven. But it's a city. Secondly, it's out of heaven from God, which is a reminder that the new heavens and the new earth, the city, the people of God, are the work of God. Salvation is not your work. It is God's work. God saving you. you God, Jesus finding you. You didn't find Jesus. Jesus was never lost, okay? He found you, and he saved you. A lot of people say, well, I got saved. Well, I got saved. Well, I got saved back in 1972. Okay, so why do you say I got saved? <laughs> say, the Lord saved me. Let's get the noun, subject, I'm sorry, let's get the noun, verb, and direct object right, okay? Noun, Jesus, verb, saved, direct object, me. The Lord saved me. I think that's a better way to say it. Because it's his work. Then it's a bride adorned for her husband. Adorned for her husband, which, which talks of intimacy. What does it mean to be with God? Intimate relationship with God. As, as Hosea, the ancient prophet, said in, in chapter 219, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. In other words, God wants an intimate relationship with you. What is heaven? Heaven is the real culmination, the physical culmination of the spiritual reality of the Christian's life, that we have life with God. That's the point. Life with God. Emmanuel. That's what Christmas is all about, right? We're going to talk about that song. We're going to sing songs about Emmanuel at Christmas time. God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. 
And so that's the point of our lives, to do life with God. Now look at verse 4. Love this verse. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Mourning, crying, pain, gone. Who's wiping the tears from your eyes, friend? What does it say? He shall wipe the tears. This is just a beautiful picture of God. He's the one who wipes the tears. He doesn't send an angel to do it. He does it. I, just, I don't know about you, but that just, that just gets me fired up. Why? Because God cares for you. He feels your pain, and he hurts for you, and he's not disconnected from what you're going through. God in heaven loves you, and what hurts you hurts him. By the way, that's why God's wrath cannot tolerate sin at all, because sin hurts you. Sin hurts you, and so God doesn't want it for your life. And so part of sin being gone means there's no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. Do you know what causes the pain in your life? Sin. Sin causes the pain in your life. Your, your parents got divorced. You got divorced. Somebody cheated on you. Somebody betrayed you. Somebody ran out on you in a business deal. What, what, what was that? Selfishness, greed, lust, envy, whatever it was. Sin. And it hurt you. And God in, in heaven cares about those pains, and he's going to come and wipe away your tears. Just picture that. One day, the Father wiping away your tears. That is so cool. It brings up this idea of the problem of evil as well, the problem of evil today. A lot of people like to use evil as a reason to disbelieve in God. Well, I can't believe that there's a God because look at how much evil. How could a God, loving God, how could a loving God let children starve and, and people get hurt and murdered and you know, how could a loving God allow things like the Holocaust or Pol Pot and the, you know, the killing fields of Cambodia and yada, 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 all that stuff? Okay, I understand that evil is horrible. And the thing that I have to ask you, though, is what is evil? <laughs> if there's no God, then there's no evil. Why does it bother you? Why does evil bother us at all? See, the problem is not that God... Does, see, the, the solution to, to our problem with evil is not to deny that God exists. The solution to evil is to find out, well, what the heck do we do about it? To me, that's, that's the case. Because even the people who don't believe in God want to do something about evil. I know atheists who, who help the poor. I know atheists who do a lot of good for, good for people because they don't think it's right that some people go without. Well, where does that come from? Where does that instinct come from to do good? If all we are is a conglomeration of cells that are just happenstance and accidents, cosmic accidents, then why does it matter if children are starving? The point is, the problem of evil actually is not a proof against God's existence. It's actually proof for God's existence that there should be an order to the universe that we currently do not have. And by the way, by the way, do you understand that the entire Bible itself is an apologetic on the problem of evil? I don't think people understand this, but the Bible itself is written to explain evil. <laughs> That's what it's there for. Only it's just you don't, like the, you don't like the presuppositions it comes with, which is that evil is in the world because we rebelled against God. See, that's how the Bible opens up. The Bible opens up doesn't say, um, the Bible opens up and, and it doesn't say, well, God is half good and half evil. No, the Bible says that God created all things good and very good, and then mankind willfully chose to disregard the good God and choose the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, the day you eat it, you're going to die. They were warned, and they still ate. And so what is the Bible doing from Genesis 3 onward? It's trying to explain where does evil come from, 
What does it do to us? How does it hurt us? And then finally, what is God doing about it? What is the good God doing about evil? And guess what he did? Ultimately, what did he do? He raised up a family through Abraham, whose great, 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 grandson bore the evils of the world on himself on the cross and died for our evil at the hands of evil man so that he might bear the wrath of God for us. This is the explanation of the Bible about evil. Now, you have every right to reject that explanation, but please, please, please don't say, don't make the claim that religious people are are, are desperately disconnected from the reality of the world. No, we are not. We see evil, but we have an apologetic. We understand it. Why? Because the Scripture teaches us how or where it comes from and how should we respond to it and what God is up to and what has God done about evil and therefore how can we live responsibly and faithfully with God in spite of the evil all around us. That's what the Bible is there for. And the point is that at the end of the age, one day, that God that people say doesn't care because there's so much evil is going to one day come up to you in the heavenly city and wipe away your tears. Wow. To me, that is just amazing. He doesn't have to do that, friend. He doesn't have to do that. He's not beholden to us. He's choosing to do this. Why? Because he loves us. Anyway, moving on. Verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Okay, a couple of things about these verses. First off, he says, Write this down. This is true. Why the redundancy here? The reason why John is commanded to write these things down is because we forget. We forget that heaven is real. We forget that heaven is real every time we get really frustrated with the minor problems of our lives in the here and now, don't we? Are you like me? Are you like me? Does traffic alone just tick you off enough to like drive you out of your mind? Do you ever find yourself cursing out the person in front of you? Christian curse words, Christian curse. Like, what the shoot? You know, what the heck? <laughs> what the flip is wrong with this person? You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? And so I was like, I'm just, this is me. I'm talking about traffic. I might be three minutes late to where I'm going as opposed to wherever I was, whenever I, I was going to show up, but because this person is going slow. Or people driving slow in the fast lane. Or the mean person at the checkout line. Uh, or, you know, I don't know, whatever it is that frustrates, the minor problems. I'm talking about minor problems. Minor problems. Because we, 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 there are people with major problems. And, and we should bear one of those burdens and weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. I get that. But I'm talking about when you forget about heaven. Here's when you forget about heaven. When minor things like traffic and little irritants through the day get you really riled up. Maybe that's you right now. Maybe maybe you're on lunch break watching the deep end on Wednesday, like every good Christian should. Hallelujah. And your morning so far has ro- has royally stunk, and you're just like, you want to rip somebody's head off. Okay, wait, wait a second. Do you have a job? Are your bills paid? Are you making some money? I mean, come on. Do you have a car to drive home in? Do you have a home to live in? Do you have a bed to sleep in? Let's talk about what you got going on for you. And most importantly, let's talk about the fact that heaven is real. Heaven is real. So even if your life stinks, the good news is this is not the end, my friend. There is a life to come. 
and you got a lot of good things to look forward to. You forget about heaven every time you spend all your money and time on pleasures here. When you don't give to the kingdom, when you don't give to the Lord, when you don't support the mission of Jesus, and all your money goes into everything that you can have here, getting, your, getting your, the best car you can, the best house you can, the best lifestyle you can, you're chasing, keeping up with the Joneses. Guess what you've just done, Christian? You've forgotten about heaven because it's passing away. 1 John 1, 2, I'm sorry, 1 John 2, 15, the world and its pleasures are passing away. It's going away. You forgot about heaven. You're also forgetting about heaven when you, when you um, lose your appetite for the things of God. When you lose your appetite. Look, heaven is life with God. And when you don't want to spend time with God, when you, when, you, when you lose your appetite for the word and you lose your appetite for church and, and worship and time with God's people, well, you forgot about heaven because a lot of that stuff is going to happen in heaven. And I just warn some people because sometimes we need, we need to remember, we need to remind ourselves that this life is not the end. And then he says, it is done. You see that there? It is done, verse 6. This is a parallel uh, word from uh, Jesus on the cross when he said, it is finished. Jesus put away the sins of those who believe him on the cross, believe in him on the cross. But here, it is done is now reflective of the fact that what Jesus said has now come to com- culmination in Revelation, that in the new city and the new earth, our sins are no longer not only just covered and washed away, but now sin is no more. It is done. It's finished. And, by the way, it is done was also stated about the, the Babylonian prostitute in Revelation 16, 17, when the prostitute was cast down, saying, the sins of the world are done. And here's the thing. Sin is going to be done one way or another. Either your sin is done at the cross 2,000 years ago by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, or your sin has, is going to be judged with the wrath of the active wrath of God, uh, the punishment of God for wicked acts. The point of the matter is that God is going to put away sin one way or the other. My suggestion to you is come to the cross and let Jesus take care of it for you. Then he says, uh, making all things new. Um, and remember that the, this is a new heaven and a new earth. So there's a lot of debate about whether or not this is a renewed heaven and a new, new earth or is this a brand new and so I could, I could tell you and I could go through all the philosophies and all the arguments for replacement theory, which is what we see now is completely gone, obliterated, and there's a new earth and a new heavens. And then I could go to the other side and say, well, no, 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 it's really about renewal. And so it's not, nothing's replaced, nothing's re- uh, absolutely replaced, just renewed. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Does it really matter? Do you care? As long as it's new, for heaven's sakes, who cares? If it's a brand new car or if it's a car that's been restored to like new condition, who cares? My point is, it's new. And there's no sin, there's no pain, there's no crying. Let's move on because there's more important things to talk about here. Because, like, like, for instance, uh, verse 6, the last half of verse 6. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So what is heaven? When it talks about thirst here, heaven is satisfying. Heaven is sat- the new heaven and the new earth will quench your eternal thirst. Ooh, that rhymed. The new heaven and the new earth will quench your eternal thirst. And, th- and, and, and uh, Isaiah also talks about this in Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who, has met, he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Verse 2, he says, why do you spend money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Many people do that. Listen diligently and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food, Isaiah says. 
Remember the woman at the well? She was thirsty, but she was really thirsty for the love of a man. And Jesus shows up, and he's the seventh man in her life. He's the seventh man. She had been married and divorced five times. She was shacking up with a guy who is number six. Jesus comes in. He's number seven, and he says, I'm going to give you the living water, and if you drink the water that I give you, you will never be thirsty again. Point being, Jesus is the one who satisfies the deepest need of your heart. And where do, we find that satisf- where, do we, where do we find that satisfaction in reality? We find it in the new heaven and the new earth. I, I say this because there's no stinking way heaven will be boring. Mm-mm. You know the famous Billy Joel song, right? I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. He's so wrong. He's so ignorant he doesn't even know what he's talking about. Okay, listen. Sinners do not have fun. They have pleasure for a season and then they get pain for a lifetime, okay? You come to Christ, he not only washes away the tears, he not only puts away the pain, he eternally satisfies you. That's the promise of the new heaven and the new earth. Are you, are you excited about going there? I mean, you should be so excited. It's like a kid on the way to Disney World. Oh my gosh, what are we gonna be there? What are we gonna be there? Okay, wait, there's a long way to get there. But anyway, <laughs> verse seven. To the one who conquers, I'm sorry, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Now, I only say this one verse on the slide alone because conquering is a key theme to the book of Revelation. The word conquer here in Greek is nikaio, N-I-K-A-O in English transliteration, which is absolutely where we get the term or the the, the brand Nike. It means conquering or victory. It's a a familiar phrase in Revelation. Actually appears this word Nikio, Nikaio, sorry, Nikaio, appears in Revelation 17 more times, far more than any other book in the New Testament. And it's something that Jesus keeps wanting us to do. Way back when he talks to the seven churches in Revelation, way back, remember we talked about this? Revelation 2, 7, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Uh, verse 11 of Revelation 2, to the one who conquers, will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation 2, 26, the one who conquers, and who keeps my words until the end, him I will give authority over the nations. Revelation 3, 5, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. Revelation 3, 12, the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Revelation 3, 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I think Jesus wants you to conquer. I think Jesus wants you to be victorious. This is the theme of Revelation. Now we win, we conquer. Why? Because Jesus conquered. That's Revelation 5.5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He can open the scroll and his seven seals. The great question in Revelation is saying this. Who wins? Who wins? And why is that important? Because in the world right now, you might be thinking, wow, it looks like the world wins. It looks like secularism wins. It looks like the atheist wins. It looks like this person that hates God wins. Uh Uh-uh. Temporary victory, friend. They might win a couple of battles, but the war is won. The war is won. And those who steadfastly remain faithful to Jesus, in spite of what happens in the world, conquer. This is what we've been talking about right through the teaching of Revelation. And remember, the big theme of this book has been to show the church what is really real. What is really real. And so what you have to understand is what looks real, the world winning, secularism winning, Satan winning, you know, the, 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 the bad guy wins. Wrong. No, no, no. That's just, that's just what is physically real. There's a real reality behind it, and that is that Jesus is going to ultimately win. 
and those in Christ will win. And I don't want you to be ashamed when Christ comes back. Hold on to your faith, the book of Hebrews says. It has very great reward. Don't give up. Press on. Maybe you're being beat down right now. Maybe this week has stunk for you. Maybe you feel, man, the world is against you. Well, it is. You should feel that way. But Jesus Christ is for you. And the Bible says in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So the Bible, the uh, the book of Revelation is calling us to keep fighting because we're going to conquer. Then verse 8, look at this. One of the most famous verses in Revelation. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Okay, look who's on the list of outsiders. I, you know, a lot of them, you look at them and you say, of course murderers shouldn't be there, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars. Of course, the detestable. Look at who's first on the list. But as for the cowardly, what? Cowardly people are not going to heaven? No, they're not. Now, let me just, let me just draw a little uh, frame of reference here, okay? First off, it's not talking about shy people. <laughs> it's not talking about timid people. Because a lot of people, just, they're just naturally shy. Or they're, you know, uh, what do you call it? Isolationist. They're, they're agoraphobic, if you will. It's not talking about that. What he's talking about is people who cower to the system of this age in regards to their faith. What is, what is, what's he talking about? He's talking about people who cave to the cultural pressure to abandon their faith to fit in. That's cowardly. And I want to say that as as boldly as I can. Don't be a stinking coward when it comes to Christ. Be strong in your faith. Stand for Jesus even when people hate you or disrespect you or don't like what you believe. So what? So what about them? They are not your judge They are not your father. They are not your God. Don't make them your God by serving them. Okay? Stand strong today, Christian. Now, it doesn't mean be obnoxious. It just means don't fall for the cultural pressure to compromise what you believe. Now, I know we talk a lot about this in regards to Christian bakers who don't bake a gay wedding cake. But there's so many other ways in which we're called to not compromise in the workplace. Like, I had a conversation with a guy this week at church, and he got fired. Actually, he quit a job where he was regularly asked to cook the books for his boss and really, like, do some pretty illegal stuff, some fraudulent stuff. Well, he quit, and he got a new job. He's kind of bored with the job, and then his old boss came back and said, hey, I'll pay you so much more money if you come back. And he said, what do you think I should do? I said, I think you should, I think you should tell him, no way. Or you tell him I'll come back, but I'm not doing that stuff anymore. What I mean by that is stand for Christ. If your boss asks you to do something illegal, tell him no. You say, well, I might get fired. And your father in heaven will watch you and reward you. I mean, at some point, Christian, the life of faith is just that, the life of faith, where we don't give in because we have faith that God is watching and will take care of us. But the pressure to, to fit in is real. Do you know that after the Holocaust, a lot of Jewish um, researchers, a lot of social scientists, did a lot of study because they were haunted. They were haunted by 
the question of why so many people in Germany were so willing to go with a hideous, evil regime and not raise up a question. We're not willing to speak out against it. So they did a lot of research. One of the experiments they did was uh, conducted by a guy named Solomon Ash. And he, and he held up, uh, he, he gathered a group of people, and everybody in the group of, in the group of people was the control, and then, the, and then there was the, the, the person that they were doing the experiment on. So one person and everybody else was in on it. And he held up two cards with two different lengths of lines on the cards. And he asked one person after another, are these the same? Are these the same? And he instructed the control group to say, yes, 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 they're the same, they're the same. So that when he got to the final person who was set up to be the test, the guinea pig of the experiment, he would go to them and say, are these the same length? And it was so blatantly obvious on the cards that they weren't. Yet time and time and time again, the person, because of peer pressure, because of all the people saying they were the same length, would say what he knew was wrong just to fit in. And that's about a stupid argument about line length. That's how easy it is to fall for peer pressure. And we got to be careful. we got to be careful about this because it is not just something you struggle with in high school. It's something that follows you through the rest of your life. you got to learn how to deepen yourself in the love of Jesus so that you do not need the love and approval of people around you. Verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. His radiance was like a rare, most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Okay. Uh, this is the same angel, by the way, who said, Come and I will show you in, in Revelation chapter 17, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. So the same angel that shows him the prostitute who is judged now shows John the city uh, that is on the mountain. And, and I just want you to see, when he's asked to see the prostitute, the angel leads him away in the spirit to a wilderness. But now he's led away to a great high mountain and sees the holy city. And the point is really figurative. It's, it's supposed to show us that Babylon, which we talked about, is the system of this world that demands that we fit in and follow along and lockstep with what they think is right and wrong. It leads to just weariness, wilderness living. It, it leads to emptiness. The holy city, conversely, is high on a mountain. It's glorious. It's beautiful. You ever go to the mountain, you see the landscape. That's what it's trying to show us, that the, the heavenly city is going to be glorious and fulfilling and satisfying and awe-inspiring. Heaven is high and exalted. It takes your breath away. Babylon in this world leaves you empty and unfulfilled. Anyway, I could have said a lot more about those verses, but we need to get moving for, sake of, for the sake of time. Verse 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the, at, the great, um, sorry, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east gate, on the north three gates, I'm sorry, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Okay, first, a couple of things about the gates. They are named after the 12 sons of Israel, Jacob's, son, Jacob's sons. Uh, and, you know, two of them, Judah and Joseph, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But then you have the foundations of the city, which had the names of the apostles. So this has already been talked about in Revelation. Now it's the culmination again, which is to say the heavenly city is built on the, um, uh, the people of Israel, who produced for us Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, 
who produces for us a new heavenly family. And by the way, every book in the Bible written by Jews, written by a member of the nation of Israel, okay, for the nations to come to faith in Christ Jesus, who himself was a Jew. And what you see here is that in the heavenly city, the Old Testament people and the New Covenant people, the Old Covenant people and the New Covenant people, together as one. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're Jewish today and, not faith, and don't have faith in Christ that you're going to heaven, okay? You need to have faith in Christ. But what it is saying is the eternal family of God is both Old and New Covenant. We're supposed to see this. Sometimes, this is even true for, you, you talk to some people, and even some Jews talk about this, who come to Christ, they assume that Jesus was Catholic. <laughs> I've heard testimonies by Jews who say that. I thought Jesus was just some Catholic guy from the Middle Ages. <laughs> they don't even know. No, Jesus is one of your people. Um, Christians worship a Jew. We worship the son of Abraham. He is our Savior. We are saved by the true son of David, a Jew. And so the point is, is that the Judeo-Christian faith and its influences right? Produce the heavenly city. And I want to just say, culturally speaking, everywhere you have the Judeo-Christian influence on a nation, a society, community, a people group, you have fairness, much more fairness, you have much more justice, you have much more rights, you have much more freedoms, you have much more dignity, you have respect for women, you have respect for all kinds of different people, and wherever you don't have the Judeo-Christian ethic, aka North Korea, aka Iran, aka Egypt, wherever you don't have that ethic, you have far less rights, far less freedoms, far less dignity, far less value, and far less self-worth. The point being that America is America in large part because of the Judeo-Christian ethic. In fact, only because of that in many respects. Okay, the greatest contribution of this country was the biblical ethic that the founders and the Puritans and the, and the pilgrims brought to this country. No, they didn't have everything right. Yes, I understand slavery was hideous and awful and, and terrible, but we still have something called abortion. We still have sex trafficking all over this country, although most people are against it, but it's still happening. But my point is, this country is far more just, far more fair, far more free, far more prosperous than almost any country in the world. And why? Because it was founded on the Judeo-Christian principles. Those foundations are, and the walls are, what make up the heavenly city which is glorious and undefiled and free from sin. Don't you see? That Revelation is teaching us not just about the heavenly city, it's also talking about what makes for a good earthly city. And then the three, tri the three gates on the north, south, east, west. What is this talking about? Well, it's actually an exact replica of the way Israel was supposed to camp around the tabernacle in the wilderness in Numbers. And uh, it's also pointing to what God's plan is from the foundation of Israel, and that is to reach out in all four directions to the nations, north, south, east, and west. This is a beautiful picture. By the way, on the um, east side of the tabernacle, that was the entrance into the tabernacle, which led to the Holy of Holies, where you met with God. Guess what tribe sat right outside the eastern gate by which you had to walk past that tribe to get into the tabernacle? Guess which tribe? Judah. Guess who comes from the tribe of Judah? Jesus. We come into the tabernacle through Jesus. Isn't that cool? You can read about it in Numbers, but it talks about where does Dan camp and Gad and Manasseh and all those other tribes. But Judah's on the east, and it's just showing it. This is a picture of how do you get to heaven? Through the son of David, the son of Judah, the son of Abraham. Pretty cool. Anyway, Jesus says in Luke 13, 29, and people will come from the east, west, north, and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. That's what Revelation 21 
is showing, the fulfillment of the north, south, east, and west coming, all the nations coming through Jesus. Verse 15, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and height are equal. Check this out. It's a perfect cube. By the way, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was also a perfect cube. So there's definitely correlation here between the Old Testament tabernacle and the inner court, the inner, inner room, the Holy of Holies, where the ark was, where once a year the high priest went. It was a perfect cube. Well, guess what? The heavenly city is a perfect cube. What is it talking about? God with man. God with man. Verse 17, he also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. That's kind of interesting. I really couldn't find anything out about angel's measurement, but nonetheless. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. Okay, a couple of things I just want to point out about this. In Ezekiel, and just remember, remember, John is a good Jew, so he's taking Old Testament concepts and he's bringing them into the New Testament realities. And, and God is saying the same thing that he said in the Old Covenant, just showing John clearer, more clearly what is to come. In Ezekiel 40, Ezekiel measures the city, and it's square. But here, it's cube. In Ezekiel's measurement, the city is six miles long, six miles wide. But here in Revelation, the city is 1,500 miles wide, long, and tall. Why? I just think it's like this. It's like God is saying... Even what Ezekiel imagined, I am doing far more than he could ever imagine. Here's, what, here's the point that I'm making to you. What God is preparing for us in the heavenly city is far, far and above what we could ever imagine. That's what I take from this text. It's like this is going to be bigger and greater than you can possibly fathom. 1,500 miles is about the distance from New York to Houston, by the way. And you say, well, uh, how is everybody going to fit in there? I th- remember this is the holy city, and I think that there's, you know, this is where we're going to dwell. It's like our home base, and I think that the cosmos will still be explored and will go out. That's my personal opinion. But this is the heavenly city, and these are symbolic pictures, by the way. It says that there's a wall around it. Um, walls in the Old Testament, there's two. There's, these are symbolic, by the way. The, the walls are so much shorter than the the height of the city. Uh, the walls are 144 cubits, and the city itself is 12,000 stadia, which is, um, I think I've, I looked that up, that's uh, like way more. <laughs> uh, basically, the wall does not measure up even uh, a fraction of what the height of the city is. And why, why, does that, why is that? Why aren't the walls as high as the city? Well, because we have no more enemies. Walls in the ancient world for, were for the protection of enemies. But, so then why walls at all? Well, because walls point to something. Isaiah 60, verse 18 says, Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation and destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. So walls shall be called salvation in the heavenly city. Then Zechariah 2, 5, check this out. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in your midst. God is the wall who is also our salvation. And by the way, the name Jesus is the Lord, our salvation. So it's all fulfilled. It's all fulfilled here in heaven, in the heavenly city, in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, verse 19. This is when it gets cool. Are you ready? The foundations of the wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, 
the 12th amethyst. Aren't you glad you're not reading the word of God right now? And I am. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I realize that some of you got to get to lunch, but come back and listen to this if you have to go. We were invited to see the colorful rainbow array of the city's foundations and the city's, city's walls. This is so beautiful. The idea of a rainbow in Scripture, remember, in Noah, in the, in the account of Noah, refers to the mercies of God not to strike the earth again with a flood. In other words, the mercies of God. Here we have the rainbow coloring of jewels around the heavenly city saying God's mercy has brought us here. And then notice that the gates were a single pearl each. That is one flipping huge pearl. Come on, somebody. It's not the pearly gates, contrary to popular pop culture references. It's the pearl gate. One pearl per gate. And you say, why? Well, I remember I had a seminary professor. He explained this to us. Beautiful picture of God's grace. See, the pearl itself is a picture of God's kindness as it reaches all the way into the suffering animal at the bottom of the sea. Where does a pearl come from? It comes from a tiny piece of coral or an unfortunate tiny living organism that attaches itself to the meat of the oyster. So an oyster's happily dwelling in the bottom of the sea and this little, this little infection comes in as infections try to get into our bodies. Well, infections try to get into oysters. And it attaches itself to the meat and starts to eat the meat away. Well, this causes pain for the oyster. But God has enabled the oyster to protect itself in this way. The oyster secretes a necra, which covers the invader with layers and smooths it out. And it's a luminous substance that hardens and it makes up the pearl. This is how natural pearls are created. But it's extremely rare to find a natural pearl. Now you think about this. Pearls are created because of pain that gets into the oyster. God empowers the oyster to cover it with something that's beautiful. And so now the pearl becomes an image of the heavenly gates. Here's the meaning. When you walk through the gates of pearl into heaven, it's a reminder that God has used all the evil and the pains of this world to accomplish something beautiful. He has accomplished your salvation. The pain is gone. He takes evil and he uses it for good. That is your hope. That is the hope of the heavenly city. Paul says in the book of Acts, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14, 22. Yeah, there's pain, but God will enable you as he does the oyster to use that pain to produce a pearl, which is gonna be the way in which you enter into heaven. I'm not saying you save yourself by, you, by turning your bad into good. I'm saying God does that for his children after they're saved. Secondly, the gates are all named after the sons of Jacob. Remember that? The 12 sons of Jacob? Remember that family, 12 sons? Remember there's one son that was favored. His name was Joseph. And the 11 sons, they hate him. They cast him off. They sell him into slavery. He goes into Egypt. He gets cast into a prison. And then he gets raised up to the right-hand side of Pharaoh, and he provides grain for the nations. This is a picture of Christ. But guess what? At the end of the story, what happens? The brothers come back to Egypt. They, the brothers come to Egypt. They stand before him. They bow before him. And if you remember, Joseph is hated by his brothers because he's given a coat of many colors by his father, a coat of what many colors? What, makes up, what else is made up of many colors? A rainbow. At the end of the story, the brothers come back. They bow Joseph reveals himself. It's a long story, but I'll just summarize it. Joseph reveals himself. He weeps. They weep. They can't believe it's him. 
And then there's this beautiful picture in Genesis 45 where they weep upon each other's necks and they all embrace each other. And it's just a picture. This is a picture of what heaven is going to be. We are the ones that cast Jesus into that pit. We are the ones who betrayed. We are the ones who did to Jesus what Joseph's brothers did to him. And he has saved us and he has taken the evil we did toward him and he bore it on the cross and used that evil to redeem us, the ultimate good, to turn it into the ultimate good, to redeem us and to bring us back into his family. And now back to the pearl. When you look at a real pearl, and I'm not talking about a farmed pearl because there's a big difference. When you look at a real pearl, it has, rainbow, it has a rainbow of colors to it. You can turn it in the light. You can see all the rainbows. Check this out. This is the best part. All 12 gates in heaven are made of a single pearl. The point being that God favors not one son, all his sons. They're all clothed in the rainbow, the rainbow of God's grace. And it's the promise to you, my friend. It's a promise to those who place their faith in Christ. Some call pearls the most colorful gem in the world because there's all kinds of colors of pearls out there, just like there's all kinds of colors of people, and God loves them all, and God wants to save from all colors a people for himself. Just interesting stuff, in my opinion. I just think that's one of the coolest facets of the heavenly city. God has taken the evil and used it for our good. The cross has triumphed over death. Finally, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for his temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And, I, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By his light the nations will walk, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay, I'm going to really quickly summarize this. Basically, the heavenly city is a city of light. And there's no temple because guess what? The city is the temple. God is the temple himself. Now we come right into the presence of God. And, 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 and I love this, is that the, all the things of the old covenant, all those pictures that God gives us, the ark of safety that God provides for Noah, the family that God provides, the son that God provides for, for Abraham, the land, the promised land that he provides for his descendants, ultimately the king that God provides in David, ultimately Jesus, the son, provides, is, is provided for, for God's people, Emmanuel, God with us, and then all of that pointing to the truest reality of all, you in heaven, in God himself, where there's no night. And the point that I would like to say here is there's no night. So here's what I'd like to finish out with. If you love the darkness, heaven is not for you. If you love to live in sin, heaven is not for you. If you want to fit in with sinners and be admired by them, heaven is not for you. They won't be there. If you hate God, heaven is not for you. It's all about him. But on the converse, Heaven is for those who love the light, for those who are done with sin, who hate it. Not done sinning, because we'll make mistakes. We will. We'll sin. I, talk about, I talked about that at this past message, this past weekend's message. But for those who are done with it, in other words, I'm fed up with it. I hate it. Heaven is for those who reject the adoration of this world and don't need to fit in because they know they belong to God. And heaven is for those whose hearts are set on him.
Do you want to go? The way in is through the rainbow of his grace in his chosen son, Jesus, who died and rose again for you. He took the pain of sin upon himself and took the devil's best shot and turned it into our victory symbol. The cross is our pathway to heaven. Revelation calls the church resolutely toward hope. I am looking forward to that. I hope you are too. But until then, we have so much work to do. So invite somebody to church this weekend. Hopefully they will make the decision for Christ. Get yourself there. I look forward to seeing you next week on the final week of season two of The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End Podcast. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and in your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.